Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, a podcast of the Political Science Department of Providence College. My name is William Hudson. I am host of this podcast. Today, I've brought back to Beyond Your Newsfeed uh, Professor Joe Camerano, Professor Matt Gordino, and Professor Adam Myers, who we heard from a couple of weeks before, a couple of weeks ago before the election, uh, making some comments about the upcoming vote and predictions about what might happen. Uh, today, we're going to follow up with a post-election discussion. We're going to start off talking a little bit about sort of the, uh, of, about what happened in terms of uh, what candidate won and, and how and, and what the mechanics of that were. Uh, but we want to spend most of the time on this podcast thinking about the larger meaning of this election. Uh, within the sort of history of American uh, politics in recent years, sort of where does this election stand and what does it mean for the future of American politics? Um, so we're going to try to give you a sort of big picture view of, of this election. But to start up off, I want to call on my colleague Adam Myers to get in a little bit into the weeds about what happened a week ago Tuesday in the election uh, and why it the election came out the way it did. And so I'm going to, I think a good way to start this, Adam, I, I'm going to ask you, what surprised you about this election in terms of the outcome based upon what we were expecting prior to the election? Well, I suppose that I was somewhat surprised by the electoral college outcome. I did expect Biden to win, but I expected him to win by a slightly mar larger margin in the electoral college uh, than he got. Uh, I was also modestly surprised by the results in the House where Democrats ended up losing seats rather than gaining them. And the results in the Senate were sort of at the uh, bottom end of what I anticipated in terms of Democratic gains, right? They, they gained one seat in the Senate, but they didn't take control of it. It's possible that they'll take control of it after the pair of Georgia runoffs uh, in January, which we can talk about later. Um, but in general, right, the election was one in which uh, President Trump and the Republicans overperformed uh, according to at least the expectations that most pollsters and political analysts had before the election. And I think at this point now, we can say what the main sort of trends and voting patterns were that contributed to the ultimate result. Uh, and so I want to briefly discuss four major voting patterns that I think are really important for people to be aware of. Uh, could, before you do that, Adam, can, can I sure. interrupt? So, so uh, it looks like now uh, Biden is going to win with 306 electoral That's right. votes. Which is exactly Which, the number of electoral votes exactly that, that Trump got. Right, exactly electoral votes. And uh, also paradoxically, it's the states of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, which in fact are cementing Biden's win. And like Trump, they are, though, though Biden is winning by a larger percentages, larger no, actual number of votes in all three of those states than Trump won by, uh, th it's still not a lot, right? He's still you know, within, you know, there's a... That, that's right. I'm not, I'm not 100% that what you say is true in regards to Wisconsin. I think that Biden's margin in Wisconsin is about the same as what Trump's margin was in 2016. But with regards to Michigan and Pennsylvania, you are correct. Um, yeah, but, but my larger point is that 
basically, they're they're narrow wins like Trump. So it's almost a mirror image. Yeah, but if, of it's, it's almost a mirror image. Uh, but that's, of course, if we look at the Electoral College, which is, after all, what counts. But in the popular vote, it wasn't such a narrow win. At this point, it looks like uh, I believe Biden is ahead at this point by over 5 million votes in the popular vote, and it may well end up being 6 million votes by the time all the votes are counted in California. So that's a sizable popular vote victory, significantly larger than Hillary Clinton's. Okay, so you're going to tell us about voting groups. Yeah, so uh, I've been thinking about this uh, quite a bit and kind of looking around the country at election results. I think that at this point we can say that this um, election can be boiled down to four significant voting patterns. Uh, the first is, and this has gotten a lot of media attention, but it needs to still be emphasized, Trump vastly outperformed himself with regards to Latino voters, or he outperformed his 2016 performance uh, with Latino voters. Um, this is especially the case in regards to Cuban Americans in South Florida, and that got a lot of attention on election night when uh, Florida was called for Trump. But we can now say that, that Trump um, did better this year than he did in 2016 uh, with Latino voters across the country, right, including in places like the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas, including places like the city of Central Falls and South Providence right here in Rhode Island. Um, Trump did better among Latino voters across the country and across Latino subgroups as well. That's a very important trend which needs to be mentioned. Number two, going into uh, the uh, election, there was a lot of talk about what Biden's performance was going to be among so-called white working class voters, white voters without a college degree. Um, you might recall, and hopefully, hopefully our listeners will recall, that after the 2016 election, um, one of the dominant interpretations was that Trump was able to win because he managed to grow turnout so much among white voters without a college degree in states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. Um, and that kind of rural counties in northern Wisconsin, northern Mis Michigan and central Pennsylvania with lots of white working class voters were what delivered him those states. And so the big question going into this election was, is Joe Biden a kind of a, an Irish Catholic from Scranton going to be able to improve the Democrats' performance among the white working class? I think um, what we now know suggests the answer to that question is largely no. Um, this varies a little bit across the country's regions, but as a general matter, um, Trump did just as well among white working class voters this year as he did four years ago. And in, and in fact, in certain places, including some of Wisconsin's northern counties, for example, Trump, Trump improved his performance. So one of the big selling points for Biden in the primaries, as you might recall, was that he would be able to appeal to these folks better than some of the other um, folks who are running for president on the Democratic side. That appears not to have borne out. Number three, um, in the lead up to the election, there was some discussion about Trump's improved or uh, greater support among black voters, right? This was showing up in some of the big national surveys. And it does appear to be the case, based on the data that we have so far, that Trump improved his performance marginally among black voters, not nearly as much as he improved his performance among Latino voters. But nonetheless, you know, it seems as though this year, you know, uh, Trump achieved 10% support among black voters, which is th three or four percentage points higher than in 2016. 
So um, if Biden didn't do better, among, it did much worse than Hillary Clinton did among Latino voters. If he did worse than Hillary Clinton did among black voters. And if he apparently did worse than Hillary Clinton did among white working class voters, how did he win this election? Well, the answer to that question, as best as I can tell, is quite simple. White voters with a college degree. Um, those, that was the shift that delivered Biden the election in key states like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And we've talked about this on this podcast before. Um, you know, the 2018 midterms, I, I discussed how Democrats were able to take control of the House largely by flipping a lot of upscale suburban districts with lots of college-educated white voters. This year, that trend continued, right? Biden was able to win Wisconsin by dramatically increasing Democratic percentages in the suburban counties surrounding Milwaukee. He was able to win Michigan by dramatically increasing uh, Democratic percentages in the suburban counties surrounding Detroit. Same story with regards to Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. That was the demographic that flipped in such a way that delivered uh, Biden his victory. And so those, in my view, are the four big trends uh, in terms of voting patterns of last Tuesday's election. Okay. Our other two guests, do you have some comments, reactions to Adam's analysis? So I largely agree with what Adam said. I would say that in terms of my biggest surprises, they were twofold. So I was surprised by the House. And in particular, I thought that, that the Democrats would probably gain a few seats. And so I was pretty surprised by that, which I would attribute largely to uh, uh, a sort of the, the kind of pro-Trump surge that we saw that defied some of the, the polling predictions that, that brought up um, the, the, the Republican vote in a, lot, in a lot of these House districts. The second thing I was surprised by was, I, I guess I, I thought that the polls would be off, that they would underestimate Trump voters in some of these states. The extent to which they did surprised me. And I could talk more about some of the reasons for that potentially, but I was, uh, I was, I was surprised. I didn't expect to see that much disconnect between polls in some of these, especially in the upper Midwest battleground states and even in Pennsylvania to an extent. And what we saw there, which was basically I would say attributed to undercounting. The evidence suggests now undercounting Trump voters, particularly certain kinds of Trump voters in those states. And I think that that poses some problems, not only short term as far as pollsters not looking good, like last time around, but also long term for how we do polling and the accuracy of polling and trust in polling. So those were the two big takeaways I would have. I would also just suggest real quickly that I think Adam's uh, discussion of the voting groups is basically on target. Although in addition to whites with a college degree, right, uh, helping uh, Biden in some of these suburban places that Adam talked about, I do think we, we can't uh, fail to mention African-American turnout in larger cities that was higher in some of these places than in the Hillary Clinton versus Trump election. Now that doesn't mean that, so, so it's correct that Trump gained among African-Americans as a percentage of the vote compared to what he had, which was important for what his margins ended up being, but also, you know, Democratic, African-American Democratic turnout was high in some of these places that uh, higher than it was last time around. We have to remember that, you know, again, nine out of every 10 African-American voters voted for Joe Biden, which is a huge margin. And so to the extent that more African-Americans turn out, that's still gonna benefit the Democrats. And I think it did help this time around as well. 
Yeah, and we, we don't yet have good statistics on the proportion of African-American um, Americans in the, in, among the entire elect, electorate, right? We're probably going to need some more data before we, we know. We don't. My understanding is that the initial data suggests that the percentage of African-Americans as a proportion of the entire electorate went down a little bit because while Matt said is, well, while, while what Matt said is true, African-American turnout probably did go up to some extent, um, turnout among all the other subgroups also went up and it seems to have gone up by more, right? And in fact, while, Matt, while what Matt said is generally true, um, my understanding is that there were certain areas in which black turnout was flat. Like I was recently reading that black turnout in the, so the majority black precincts in Milwaukee actually did not go up. And so this, this, I think black turnout varied across the states and across the country. Joe, you want to add anything more to that? Because I've, I've got a couple of sort of larger sort of meaning issues that I, I want, to, want, to, want to get into based upon what Matt and Adam have said. Anything to add, Joe? Yeah, I would say the surprises for me was I wasn't expecting the what I sense might be a splintering of the Latino population into what normally would be appropriate subgroupings. I, I think that the appeal about socialism resonates not just with Cubans, but with Venezuelans in the U.S., as well as Colombians and others. Uh, we'll leave that for another podcast with Dr. Afinia. The other thing that I wanted to say was I was really very pleasantly surprised that it was such an orderly um, election day. We had very, very little, almost no uh, disruption or disruption attempts and a very smooth process um, because there were some pretty dire forecasts prior to it. Okay, so uh, you've raised a couple of issues that I think we need to maybe explore in a little more depth and think about their long-term implications. Uh, and the first one is uh, what Matt mentioned about the polling error in this election. Uh, I've been reading a lot in the last couple of days from polling experts about how that there's a possibility here that the polls were uh, not capturing uh, a lot of people who are reluctant to respond to polls, that we have this, this phenomena of low trust in institutions, and that includes low trust in pollsters, and those people end up be, being under-polled, and a lot of them happen to be Republicans or Trump supporters. Okay, is there anything to that? And if, it's that, if that's the case, does this pose a real sort of existential problem to the whole practice of political polling in future elections? How can this be overcome, if at all? So I'll, I'll jump in on that and say that I think that, that it, when all is said and done, there are going to be a lot of different factors that contributed to the polling problems in this election. But I, I'm going to go on a limb and say that's going to end up being the number one problem. And I think it's starting to get some attention, but it actually gets needs to get more attention because I do actually believe that it poses a pretty fundamental threat to polling, especially election polling and horse race polling, which we want to kind of distinguish a little bit between sort of ordinary uh, or from ordinary uh, public opinion policy polling. So, uh, and, and it has to do with declining trust in institutions. It has to do with the uh, asymmetric declining trust on each side of the partisan aisle. And that declining trust, I would suggest, is no accident. It, it, it's a long-term issue 
and it's fueled and cultivated and reinforced, if not entirely caused by elite uh, communication and, and, and arguments and discourse that is including from the Trump, Trump administration and Trump himself, but that goes well, well beyond Trump uh, telling people that we ought to not trust pollsters, academics, elites, scientists, the mainstream media. And I do think that, you know, one of the attempts to kind of correct for that from 16 was to uh, overweight, right, folks, particularly white folks without college degrees. Uh, but I think that that helped a little bit, but it doesn't go nearly far enough. And the issue is that this is not necessarily just a matter of demographics. It's, you know, there may be characteristics associated with, say, certain white voters without a college degree that are not easily captured in ordinary election polling. Um, this, so therefore, we cannot wait for them that distinguish those whites without a college degree who trust polls versus those who don't. Right. If we want to correct for not getting enough responses from distrustful whites without a college degree who might support Trump, say, um, then it's hard to do that uh, properly. And I, so, so I do think it's more existential. And although the other thing I'd say about it is that we often misunderstand what pre-election polls are actually good at, which is not predicting election results. And the mainstream media, unfortunately, is not very good at I don't think always good at accurately conveying to viewers and readers that these are snapshots, that they capture attitudes and, and that, that they're based on a variety of assumptions that may or may not turn out. And then we end up having, we put, we, we pay too much attention to them rather than a sort of proper level of attention to them. So I think all of those are, are relevant factors. To be a little wonky about that, Matt, really the problem for pre-election polls is the earth sampling a population that doesn't exist yet, right? That's what you're really trying to do. Uh, and because the, the, the population doesn't emerge until essentially all the votes are in, right? All the votes have yes. occurred. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and being able to have a, a sample that accurately or reasonably accurately reflects who is likely to vote and does that in a way that accurately captures different kinds of subgroups who may vote for certain candidates is diff very difficult. And I think it's becoming more difficult because of low response rates across the board and, and especially lower response rates among certain kinds of voters because of declining trust in institutions. So if this is the problem, how should we as political scientists recommend to our students and I guess the general public uh, how to evaluate polls in the future? Uh, should we should we spend less time in our classes even talking about polling? I know I spent a lot of time this semester in my American government class talking about the polls, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, is that maybe a pedagogical error? And we ought to, uh, and for the public at large to say, look, uh, people just shouldn't pay that much attention. It's, uh, it's, it's, now, it's now too hard to estimate that future electoral population and that we can't expect to learn much from these snapshots before the election. What do you all think? What I would say is that, and this is a point that Matt already made, but I just want to reiterate it. It's very important to distinguish between 
uh, electoral polls and other types of political surveys, right? Because with regards to other types of political surveys, we do actually know the population that we want to estimate characteristics for. So for example, if we wanted to look at public opinion uh, about, let's say, abortion among the population of Rhode Island adults. Well, we know what the population of Rhode Island adults looks like, right? And so we can draw a representative sample of Rhode Island adults, right? The issue with election polling, just to reiterate what you said earlier, Bill, is that, yeah, the population that we're trying to make inferences off of does not exist yet. Um, and so, you know, it's like sort of an invisible population that we're that we're kind of that we have to sort of model in our minds. And that's what kind of pollsters who are doing election polling, they have to do. They kind of have to try to guess what the electorate's gonna look like. And that's very hard to do. And it's especially hard to do today, um, given the fact that with the political parties kind of more and more emphasizing mobilization and, and turnout among different subgroups rather than persuasion, right? Um, I think turnout across elections, particularly turnout across different, uh, among different subgroups across uh, populations is becoming more and more unstable across elections, right? I don't think this was the case 30 years ago. Um, and so with all of this turnout instability, just sort of modeling what the electorate might look like is becoming more and more difficult. I, but I think that the, I, I think it's important to emphasize to our students and to others that as a general matter, the political survey world, the survey research world is on fairly solid grounds. I still trust, you know, absolutely. I mean, obviously there's sampling error and so forth, but as a general matter, I trust the Pew surveys um, that look at public opinion um, among Americans. I trust the Gallup surveys. I trust the YouGov surveys. Election polling in particular has major problems that the election polling world is going to need to address, right? But that's one particular part of the broader survey research world. I would also just say, uh, I would also say uh, quickly on the side back to the horse race polls that as many problems as there were and are that I think are very, very serious and will be long-term as we've discussed, it's important to realize that when all is said and done, the good surveys, the well, the, the credible, well-conducted surveys uh, in terms of the horse race polls are going to have accurately identified the winner of the popular vote, the winner of the election, and the winner of the popular vote in probably 48 out of 47 or 48 out of 50 states. In other words, the margins were messed up, but the, the idea that that means that polling or even horse race polling should just be thrown out, I think that that's a discourse that we need to push back against in the general public and with students. I'm gonna be a little more direct, Bill. Um, I think you should indeed talk about the polls less in your class, in part as a pedagogical tool for explaining this distinction that we're making between attitude surveys and campaign surveys or election surveys. Uh, I do think we fall into the trap of paying attention to what everyone else is paying attention to. And our job is to do something different. So I would say, yes, don't pay as much attention to them. Yeah, so in the long run, probably the, there's a lesson here for the, the pundits uh, to, to be a little more careful about how to interpret and discuss these. And you know, it remains to be seen whether or not that happens. Uh, but anyway, the, the next issue that um, I'd like that you, you, that you began to raise, Adam, is about these shifts among different segments of the population. And the, 
this particularly the shift of Democrats attracting more educated voters. Are we seeing here, and maybe Trump has precipitated this, though I don't think he's the originator necessary, are we seeing an incipient realignment here that between the parties that the Democrats are going to become the party of the of the educated elite of the people who are the scientists and the experts and and that the uh, the less educated uh, people across demographic groups, not only among whites but maybe even among uh, other ethnic groups, are going to gravitate more towards at least Republicans or Trumpist type Republicans. What do you all think of that? Yeah, so I think it's important to be careful here and and say at the outset that you're at, like even in this election year, right? Your average Republican voter was significantly more high SES than your average Democratic voter. So we should say that that has been a that's been a general fact of American political life since forever, and that did not change in this election. On the other hand, as you I think allude to, Bill, right? If you think about what the groups that shifted toward the Republicans um, in this election have in common, right? Latinos, African-Americans, white people without a college degree. Well, these are all low SES groups, right? And the one group that shifted in the, toward the Democratic direction is, you know, the more high SES group, white people with a college degree. And so, you know, just in terms of the shifts that occurred, um, in this election, I think it's pretty clear, right? This election does represent the, for lack of a better way to put it, the gentrification of the Democratic Party. And uh, I don't know exactly what to say about, I'm hesitant. <laughs> All right, I'll just say it. You know, it kind of represents the slow moving proletarianization of the Republican Party. Uh, now, I, I, yeah, I can see Matt laughing. He's shaking his head. I, I knew I was going to draw that reaction. Again, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that these trends are going to last forever or that, you know, that by, you know, 20, 30 years from now, we're going to have a completely inverted class divide or anything like that. I'm just saying that is the reality of 2020. And it is useful to ask what this means. Uh, Matt, respond there. So I think Adam's onto something in terms of some some important voter shifts that we're seeing that that may have long term implications, particularly white, less educated white voters moving toward the Republicans that I think is going to go beyond Trump. Uh, and so it's going to be a longer term phenomenon, I think. And I also think he's right that there is um, a movement of how more highly educated people to the Democratic Party, right, over time. I think that's un understandable and explainable by the sort of the shift in the Democratic Party's policy agenda, frankly, um, and the different kinds of issues that have become important in American politics in the last several decades. On the other hand, we, you know, another key part of the Democratic Party coalition that I think will continue to be a key part going forward are non-white voters and uh, especially non-white voters who are lower in socioeconomic status. And I don't think that changes with this election appreciably. I'm skeptical that the gains among Latino voters that we see here are gains that will ultimately be growing for the Republican Party and durable as we go forward. Again, I'm not an expert uh, in, in, in you know, Latino politics, but I, I see the appeals that Joe said to socialism 
about socialism. And I see that as having limited potential staying power given the demographic changes, especially, especially uh, uh, the, the tremendous increase in the percentage of the public that's going to be Latino as well as younger, right? And sort of the, the, the age dynamic that we're seeing because all of the good surveys show that younger Americans are significantly more liberal and frankly, significantly more open to quote unquote socialism or socialistic ideas across voting, across demographic groups, at least this generation that's coming up now. And so as they age into politics more and become greater turnout, I'm not sure that those things are gonna, um, I, I don't, I'm not sure that the trends that we saw from this election, pro-Republican among uh, non-white groups are gonna endure. And, and so I think in the end that it's gonna still be this, this kind of shifting coalition of more highly educated whites and more highly educated people in general with a very strong and, and pretty uh, solid group of non-white voters who are uh, in, in lower socioeconomic status. The only thing I want to add is I don't disagree with anything. Uh, I do think the generational dynamic is something that we'd be remiss if we didn't at least emphasize a little bit that it does appear as if there's a changing dynamic and, it's, and there is a generational component to it. But these dynamics could be influenced by how the parties respond, right? Uh, could, Absolutely. I mean, I mean, do, can we expect the Republicans, for example, to uh, respond to their growing uh, uh, support from non-college educated whites and, and, a, and a fraction of African-Americans and Latinos in ways that might make the support of those groups more endurable? Are there policy responses that they possibly could give that might solidify them as part of a Republican coalition? And on the other side, for the Democrats, is there a way that the Democrats could, could I guess, manage this appeal to the more highly educated and the ethnic diversity of the party? How do you, how do you meld that together? And what kind of policies and, and what kind of rhetoric uh, melds those things? What do you all think about that? How, how should the parties respond to these developments? I'm going to start with that because I'm not the expert Adam really is on this, but um, I do think that it's going to be hard for both. If we think about the Democratic Party as historically coalitional, they're more likely to be able to pull it off. And the Republican Party, which is, you know, tends to be more unity oriented, is going to have a tough time bringing in more Latinos, as Matt said, while also not alienating uh, or creating more friction points with, um, you know, those who might be more nationalistic in their sensibilities. So that's sort of my quick rub on that. But now Dr. Myers knows what he's talking about. So let him go. <laughs> well, actually, I don't, but I'll, I'll give it my best shot. So first of all, I think, Bill, that to a large degree, you're already seeing the Republicans make these adjustments. That's what the results of 2020 were all about. And you know, and as you'll, you guys will recall, I, I did discuss this in, in podcasts uh, previously, and I think all, all of you sort of poo-pooed it. Like I, I talked about how the Republican National Convention featured many speakers of color, right? And um, I discussed how the big national surveys uh, were showing that Trump was improving his performance among 
um, Latinos and blacks, especially men, especially Latino men and black men. And that's another component to this that I don't think we should ignore. Um, there's an emerging gender gap and education gap that seems to be operating across racial groups. Um, and, and so that complicates things quite a bit as well. Um, but so I think those appeals uh, to racial minorities by the Republicans are already being made. And I don't think they have to be tethered all that tightly to policy. Now, I will say this, that, um, and I made this point in a presentation to some students at PC that Matt and I um, participated in a couple nights ago. The issue of immigration, I think, right, is a really important one for the Republicans to solve. It's important to bear in mind that it was almost absent from this campaign which is a huge, huge, uh, stark difference from 2016, where immigration was the central, if there was a policy issue that defined the Trump campaign, it was immigration. Um, this year, the Trump campaign downplayed immigration dramatically. And that's, I think, in large part, what facilitated his gains among Latino voters. And so I think what Repub Republicans in particular need to think very carefully about this, right? Because I do think they could consolidate um, a fairly large share of the Latino vote by simply taking the issue of immigration off the table. Now that's going to require Republicans to confront their kind of nativist, the, the nativist components of their base, which is gonna be hard to do, right? And, and, and so for me, this is the big coalitional challenge that Republicans face. Can they seize this moment, right? And work towards some sort of comprehensive uh, agreement that leads to the uh, legalization of uh, you know, the 11 million unauthorized immigrants in this country, and that leads to a permanent fix for the DACA recipients and so forth in such a way that the immigration issue is taken off the table. Because once it is, I think that in a lot of respects, again, Matt is right about younger Latino voters, and, and we can talk about that. But as a general matter, um, for a lot of Latino voters, the Republican Party is the more natural home once you take away the immigration issue. So that's as far as the Republicans are concerned, I think I should let Matt talk before. I'll just uh, chime in there. The that, that also would be make their their business uh, base also very happy to take immigrants. You know, the the, the yeah. that want immigrants. Uh, but I do think there's a real tension with the sort of the nativist component, and, and how to overcome that is a huge challenge within the Republican Party. Matt, you wanted to. I actually agree with a lot of what Adam said, but I mean, this is such a difficult issue. And part of the reason is we have to be really careful not to oversimplify the quote unquote Latino vote because it's an extremely diverse group of, uh, group of Americans, culturally, religiously, geographically, in terms of nationality, and in terms of policy attitudes, uh, in terms of right versus left. Uh, I'm skeptical. I'm fr in fr fact, I would say, I'll go further and say I'd be shocked if any time in the medium term future, the Republican Party is able to pull this off successfully in the way Adam suggested that they have a chance to. And the main reason is that there's the nativist and more right wing kind of populist and, and kind of white identity related part of the Republican Party is still very pop politically powerful. And that will be the case after Trump as well. And getting enough Republican elites to, to break with that at least rhetorically and at least enough to be able to kind of quote unquote take immigration off the table the way Adam suggested. I just, unfortunately, I think for the country, it, it, for the larger sort of debate in the country, I just, I don't see that happening anytime soon. But we also have to remember that 
yeah, the, the pro-business kind of uh, message does appeal to a lot of Latino voters. On the other hand, most of the survey data for decades show that uh, Latino voters, again, I don't want to oversimplify, but as a whole, tend to be more uh, in favor of government role in social welfare programs than the mainstream Republican Party is, 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 uh, is, is willing to uh, project, you know, right now, uh, including healthcare. So we need to think about things like uh, health insurance and Obamacare as issues that are going to also probably have to shift somewhat on the Republican side to get enough Latino voters um, to, to kind of forge that realignment. Okay, can I raise a new topic here? And this is something that I've been thinking about a lot you know, the last week or so, and that's the extent to which this election made us aware once again about how deeply divided the country is. Uh, I looked up today, you know, in the election, uh, Biden got 78 million votes, which is a huge number, but Trump got 73 million, you know, and so that's, Biden did 5 million better, but, the, but that's a small margin given the total. So that's a country that's deeply, deeply divided. And what does that mean for our democracy? How can we function, you know, especially given the very uh, sharply different messages and policy agendas uh, that the candidates articulated and, and, the, the, and what they represented, yet both attracted almost an equal number of Americans. Uh, what does that mean for the country? Let me uh, start off there, if, if you guys don't mind. Uh, I want to suggest that these results, I don't know if this will happen, but I hope it happens, that these results will kind of put the final nail in the coffin for um, this illusion that I think the Democratic Party has been operating under for about 20 years now. I would say that for about 20 years now, Democrats have been operating under the pretense that they are on the cusp of achieving a durable majority for themselves at the federal level, right? There's been this idea that's dominated in progressive circles for two decades that this kind of ascendant democratic coalition that we've been talking about of racial minorities and well-educated professionals um, will put Democrats over the top in a critical election that will lead to, you know, a new 1930, 1930s style democratic era for the next several decades. And um, Democrats have been um, obsessed with this idea for 20 years, as I said, the future, all, this future dominance always seems right around the corner, but it never happens. And I actually blame political science um, for the proliferation of this idea because, you know, as all of us know, right, one of the dominant theories in political science um, has been this idea that, you know, American politics operates in cycles, these 30, 40 year stretches in which we have a majority party that forms a majority coalition that dominates philosophically. And then we have a short burst of change, which leads to a new majority party, right? And, and this theory has gone by different names over the past several decades and different iterations. It used to be called realignment theory. It was later called partisan regime theory. But the basic contours of the theory are the same. And so I think a lot of progressives and Democrats are aware of this theory, even if they are not political science PhDs. And they've been operating under this assumption that since the 1980s, we've been living in the Reagan Republican era. And so it's time for the tide to turn. And the next era is going to be a democratic era in which the Democrats dominate. And I think um, this election really should um, 
disabuse us of that notion. The reality is that really since 2000, we've been living in this kind of long-term period of stalemate in American politics. The parties have been closely divided for that long. They're able to make rapid adjustments. And it seems to me that in, in, in the 21st century, it's not going to be, and we can get into more about why this is, but it seems to me that it's not going to be possible uh, for either of the political parties to form a durable 30-year governing majority like it was in the past. And I think as soon as Democrats accept that, Right. Um, they can um, have more real, they can develop more realistic visions of how to implement the progressive agenda. So that's what I would say about what the most important take home message of this election is. So that's interesting because, you know, I agree, Adam, that the Democratic Party should stop using essentially an outdated paradigm. And that is sort of an evolutionary theory of partisan alignment. Um, I, you know, I think we're well into quantum politics. Uh, no, I'm serious. I think we need to think about how chaos theory might help us understand um, politics a little bit better. Uh, the notion that, you know, that candidates rather than trying to sort of persuade are now manipulating. Um, you know, that's something that happens in quantum theory. You can change things by manipulating sort of, you know, subatomic sub particles. And I think that's what we're seeing, but we haven't quite figured out what that means in this old modern notion that you have these two big entities crashing together and pushing against each other, sometimes losing, sometimes winning. I think you're right. I think we need to reconfigure this idea. I think that this election was more about identity politics than anything else. Um, and identity politics very deep down on both sides. And so I, I think we do need to start reconsidering our paradigms. But I, I may, maybe Matt can address this, but I'm struck by the way that you are, are discussing this in terms of the Democrats, Adam. And I keep thinking about it in terms of, well, so it's a problem for the Democrats, this big divide. How are the Democrats going to respond? How should the Republicans respond? Because though they, they have, the parties are equally divided, uh, the Republicans are just as unable to put together a, an enduring coalition for the future, uh, given reality. Yeah, I'm going to disagree with you, Bill. I'm going to disagree with that. I think the, I think the Republicans understand that they're a minority party and they keep finding ways to win anyway. Um, and that is, again, an indication that they get this postmodern sensibility that in order to win, you have to do things differently. And we're going to win. That's our goal. Um, and so for me, I think the Republicans have done a better job at this because if they were acting like Democrats, there'd probably be they'd probably only be 35 to 40 percent of the House of Representatives instead of nearly nearly 50 percent. So I want to jump in here and say that I, I, I tend to more or less agree with Joe on this, but I want to take it a step further and just say that that I think that another way to look at this is that the Republicans have done a better job in the last several decades of re responding to a changing um, basically a fragmented communication and information environment. And I want to, so I want to bring the media in here for a minute. And I think it's not getting nearly enough attention, you know, uh, right now, just in general, understanding these results. So what I mean by that is that 
you know, in previous eras, when we've actually seen realignments that more or less might mirror, right, these evolutionary theories, we've had a very different situation in the country when it comes to information and communication. We'd had, we've had a more or less common, you know, kind of mechanism for transmitting information and campaign messages from the elite level to the public. It's been, you know, not reaching everyone to the same degree, but has been a more or less constant and kind of common flow. We're starting to see that break down. There are lots of complex reasons for why it's breaking down. I think the fact that it's breaking down is dangerous in a lot of ways, but for as far as the campaigns are concerned, Republicans have done really well in leveraging ways to kind of send different kinds of messages to just enough aspects of certain voter groups along, and, and so, and, and, and some of that is manipulative, and frankly, some of it is misinformation, but nevertheless, there's that, and then also doing other forms of manipulation, like voter suppression, like taking expert advantage of gerrymandering, and other kinds of things that allow what under old theories would suggest should be a minority party, meaning a, 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 a minority political coalition, um, not, not, be, not fall into that fate, right? At least not yet. And uh, I don't see those issues changing anytime soon the democrats have assumed that the demographic changes are going to be to their benefit and they've just done what adam says which is said well just hold on right as the as the electorate gets less white as it gets younger as less of levels of education rise as we become a more sophisticated and urbanized society right we're going to be the dominant party and it just does not work that way especially now so from what both of you have said um, adam You've said the Democrats cannot plan on a future, you know, majority uh, based upon demographic change. And Matt, you've agreed with that. And we've had success from the Republicans of minority rule. So what does that pretend for the future of our politics? Are we going to look forward to a period of permanent minority rule? Uh, can the Democrats overcome uh, the uh, Republican grip on the institutions? I mean, we have, you know, a Senate that is uh, capable of, that is, is in fact, a might can be a, used by a minority to, to, to dominate the Senate because of malapportionment. Electoral College contributes to that. Matt mentioned gerrymandering. Uh, there's other things like using, you know, the state itself uh, in order to uh, prevent uh, participation. Uh, to suppress votes, um, and I guess I'm thinking about partly also of the, about this also in terms of the current sort of refusal refusal of Trump to concede, uh, and how that sort of fits into this. Are 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 the Republicans in a position to uh, to remain in power for a long time, representing a minority of the population? Well, so there's a lot there. So um, let me see if I can break that down a little bit and answer your question as best as I can. So obviously, the, the, let's set aside the Trump factor and, and his inability to accept the results of this election. I'm not saying it's not important. It clearly is. But focusing on the Republican Party kind of writ large, um, I guess I take some issue with your kind of interpretation that the party is is trying to 
institutionalized minority rule in the sense that, first of all, they're not going to be ruling um, starting in January, right? They're not ruling right now. Democrats control the House. Starting January, Democrats will, a Democrat will be president and Democrats will control the House. Um, we will have divided government. Right, that is true, um, but it's it seems to me, and this gets back to your earlier question about the Republicans and this kind of um, cyclical pattern versus the Democrats. Republicans, as Matt sort of said, they're not operating on this premise that they're on the cusp of like attaining absolute power, um, or at least it doesn't seem that way to me. They are operating more, I think, um, in response to this anxiety. Um, um, regarding the ascendancy of the Democrats, right? So it's a different perspective. They're just trying to hold back democratic gains. They're trying to hold back democratic power. They, they, they don't seem to have any, one, one clear way of seeing this is that there's almost nothing on the Republican policy agenda these days. Like I don't, I don't know what Republicans would do if they had unified control of government other than maybe more tax cuts, right? There's really nothing, uh, policy-wise that unites Republicans such that they would implement, you know, major policy change, even if they could. Um, so now, um, your your broader question concerning kind of, I, I think, relates to the institutional constraints that Democrats face, right? Democrats, um, I, I don't think they are the clear majority party in terms of having clear a clear majority in the electorate. But I will agree that certainly if you look at the the popular vote in presidential elections, right, they've now won eight of the nine previous presidential elections in terms of the popular vote. So they seem to have, I guess, a slight majority um, in, in the American public, and they can't seem to translate that into um, durable control of the federal government, all you know, the different branches of it. If Democrats really, really were serious about established about getting to a situation where they had where they could have durable control of the entire federal government, then they would simply then they simply have to go after these white working class voters that they've lost. The reason I say that is because those voters are overrepresented in the small rural states that are overrepresented in the Senate, right? And there's just no way to win the Senate. Right. And to um, win, like uh, control of the tenant for an extended period of time anyway, without winning back some of those white working class voters. That's just the reality of the situation. How do you get those voters back uh, is a much more complex question. And I don't I don't know how Democrats should go about doing that. But if Democrats really, truly want to create a governing majority, my view is they have to get those voters back. Yeah, but we've just seen a demonstration of the failure of their ability to do so. So, right, the Biden, Biden from Scranton, Pennsylvania, you know, the working class guy who speaks their dialect, you know, couldn't do it. You told us that. So, so what? What? How? How do you do that? Uh, is it even possible in in face of what Matt was mentioning about the Republicans' ability to use the media to send out messages that consistently? Uh, demonize the Democrats in the minds of a lot of those voters. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to jump in and suggest that we have to think about political time, that um, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about this election, and it seems to me that it might be equivalent to the 1932 election had that election been held in the summer of 1929. 
um, where things were really good. It was a you know, fairly divided country, but not that divided. The Republicans were in control. Um, but then the stock market crash hit and the depression started. I personally think that the opportunity right now is to heal some of these divisions because we're not going to have any other choice. Otherwise, we're going to see, you know, three quarters of a million people dead in six months. Um, and so, you know, I personally think that for uh, President-elect Biden, there is an opportunity because all of these people in rural states where we're now seeing the highest rates of infection of COVID in the world um, at any time during this pandemic, they're going to start. They're going to start needing some some help for the first time in a long time, and they're not going to be able to get it from their usual places. So I, you know, I personally think that you know the opportunity might be there for because of these unfortunate circumstances, but in the long run, it might actually save our country by reducing the division. To me that, and so I, there's a lot of in, good, interesting stuff that you all have said recently that I could respond to, but I wanna bring race back in just for a minute here because the, the task that Adam set for the Democratic Party of gaining back more of these white, so-called working class white voters is critical for that reason. How to do it is difficult. And I think it's mainly difficult because of the racial dynamics involved and the ways in which we've seen racial polarization on different levels increase in the ways in which uh, it's, it's hard to see us as a society anytime soon, sadly, kind of getting, you know, getting over that hump, I guess, uh, enough to, you know, see the kinds of gains among those sorts of voters that Democrats would need, right? I think that Joe Biden's personal background was, is not nearly enough, right? I mean, that's a kind of candidate trait personality appeal that, clearly is just not enough, right? I mean, look at Donald Trump, does not come from a working class background, could make no real credible claim to that. And, and also, as far as his policy messages were concerned in 2016, and also this year, was at least inconsistent on policies that would at least rhetorically help the white working class. It's a lot about identity, and it's a lot about racial identity, sadly. And the Democrats being able to pull that off, again, given the communication information constraints are gonna be tough. Yeah. And I guess this brings me back to the sort of policy gridlock that uh, I'm a little less sanguine than Adam seems to be about, about that gridlock. I think we have these huge problems out there and the, the sharp political divisions uh, are not helping us to, and the, our institutions are not such that we can craft some real responses. And without that, then we're simply left to this big identity fight. Uh, and, and, you know, I was somewhat hopeful that the Democrats would regain a majority in the Senate only so that some sensible uh, policies could be enacted to, first of all, address, the, address COVID. I mean, there's some things Biden can do through executive action, but to really do, to do a good job addressing the current crisis, you're gonna need, you would need to pass legislation that would provide substantial economic stimulus, uh, substantial uh, support for building public health infrastructure uh, with you know, a divided government that's not likely to happen. Well, maybe there'll be a kumbaya moment and Mitch McConnell will suddenly say, oh yes, I agree. We need a major stimulus here. 
to bring the economy back. Uh, you know, that didn't work in 2009. I don't see it happening now. And uh, without those responses, then these conditions get worse and worse. Uh, uh, people of all ethnicities are adversely affected. Inequality grows. Uh, not to mention problems with things like infrastructure, uh, investments in, uh, and I include their education, uh, revamping the education system for, you know, modern times. And we haven't mentioned climate change. I mean, I mean, it's just it is just awful. Uh, we're we're our our world is is uh, you know heating up, and all kinds of uh, horrible things are going to result from that. And we've seen that and. The only way we're going to get that is to have some effective governance. And I've really been thinking a lot in recent, you know, in the last, you know, six months or so about a failed state. Is America becoming a failed state in which our political division, our partisan divisions, our identity divisions uh, are, I would say, antiquated 18th century political institutions are simply not capable of coping with the problems we face? Yeah, I would probably agree with a lot of what you said, but I, I, I guess being a middle child, I tend to see the optimism uh, for people coming together. I think Mitch McConnell is an opportunist and a pragmatist, and he's changed more than once in his life, particularly his political life. And um, if things are going to be as dire as the public health experts are telling us they already are becoming, I think he's going to need to change a little bit. And, you know, we do know that he and Biden are actually personal friends. Uh, McConnell's the only Republican senator who went to Biden's son's funeral. Uh, and there, that has real meaning. Uh, and so I think, you know, there is an opportunity here. And it's unfortunate that it's going to take this sort of dire crisis. But again, I think that we're in such a state that that's probably all that's going to do it. We're hanging by a thread but I still have a little bit of hope. I'm not nearly as hopeful as Joe on this. And, and frankly, I'll go as far as to say that, well, I'll make two quick points. So one is just that, that going back a little bit to something that Bill said, talking about all the severe policy challenges we face, there's this wonky concept in political science called policy feedback, which is basically the situation where what policies, once they're enacted, can change the political landscape, can send messages and provide resources to people who then change their political uh, behavior and or their political attitudes to the benefit of the, those who enacted the policies often, although not always. For the Democrats to be able to pull that off, which is what would kind of need to happen politically for them, requires there to actually be policy, real substantial policy enacted that is, that, that is beneficial and is seen as beneficial by enough of these voter groups. And I just don't see it happening, frankly, soon. But Biden will bring, needless to say, a level of basic competence and professionalism back to the executive branch, which is a lot considering what's been happening in the last few years. But in terms of the kinds of major policy changes that would push in the other direction, I don't see it. I think, I, I wish I agreed with Joe. I think, and I'm not, this is not a comment on your age, Joe, but I think you're, you're, you're talking from a kind of earlier era, uh, institutionally, <laughs> institutionally in the Senate, where there was a kind of uh, a, a, a Senate, a level of kind of personal respect in, in, in manners and cooperation and camaraderie among senators across the aisle, uh, and they were institutionally incentivized for that in a way that I don't see that now. 
Uh, and, as, and, and frankly, as much as I like the message the Biden campaign brought forth of, well, let's kind of bring back some normalcy, I think that there's a dangerous edge to that because it suggests, I think, naively that Joe Biden, given that he was a senator for so long, so long in the 70s and 80s, right, is going to be able to play that kind of politics under the current conditions and be able to get things done. And I think it's dangerous to assume that because I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, you know, I don't disagree with you, particularly with the decline of any kind of comedy in the Senate. And it's, it's all a bunch of you know, self-centered ego, egoists in the Senate now. I think that's right. But I, I want to I, I say that I think there's a great power to severe crisis, which I don't think we fully comprehend we're in already. Um, and I, I do think all bets are off when that happens. I, I guess I'll say, if, I'll chime in here and say a few things. I, I basically agree uh, with Matt regarding uh, Biden's kind of overestimation of his ability to use his personal skills to to bend McConnell his way and so forth. You know, Biden, it's pretty clear that his his political theory has a lot to do with personal relationships um, and and his ability to leverage those personal relationships to get stuff done. But that just really discounts all the big structural factors that are at work that's that's driving the polarization and gridlock, things that we've talked about today and in previous podcasts. And I, just, I don't think he's, I think he's going to discover relatively quickly that his, um, his personal skills are not going to um, be all that effective in generating important policy breakthroughs. To your earlier question, Bill, I share your general pessimism regarding the ability of the country to rise to the occasion and, and solve these policy challenges. And I think that for progressives, again, this gets back to what I earlier said, what I said earlier about having to acknowledge that, you know, there is not going to be this durable democratic um, uh, majority, this new progressive age. Um, for progressives who are sort of despairing about that and despairing uh, about the ability of the country to solve these progressive these uh, policies in a progressive way, I guess what I would say is, and I know this answer is not going to be satisfactory to you, but Democrats need to make use of the 15 or so states where they have unified control of government. There's a tremendous amount that can be done at the state level. Um, including, including in regards to climate change, right? California is the sixth biggest economy in the world, right? And there's a lot more that California could do to combat climate change. There's a lot of things that state governments can do um, to respond to many of the issues you were talking about. Obviously, there's limits to state policymaking. There's certain things that only the national government can do. Uh, but I think um, progressives today should look to the progressives of the early 20th century when national politics was also locked up. And the big progressive gains of the 1900s and 1910s did occur at the state level. Uh, and, um, and I would also say that if you look at a lot of this, there's a, there's a lot of states right now that where the governor is a Democrat and the legislature is a Republican. Um, in those states, Republicans are not going to be able to gerrymander legislative district lines, which means that Democrats could, in theory, um, assuming the electoral tides shift, um, get into power in them in the next um, several years. And so I do think um, that for progressives, it's important to revitalize this concept of progressive federalism, which began to get some attention in 2017, um, but then sort of fell off the radar screen after Democrats took control of the House 
and then as the presidential election got closer. So that's what I would say. Yeah, I, 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 in, I agree with that, Adam. I, I'm, I'm in favor of uh, progressive federalism. And, you know, it was, we saw a little bit of that going on, you know, during the COVID crisis when the national government failed to act and we saw some consortia of, of states in various regions trying to cooperate and the like. I guess the thing I worry about is the extent to which uh, federal power would be used to, in fact, attack those progressive uh, enterprises. Uh, certainly we saw that at the beginning of the century, century with the Supreme Court that struck down right. child labor laws and things well, like that. Well, with, a, with I mean, Biden as president, so, that's less likely to happen, so. No, but it's, you know, but he doesn't control the whole right. federal establishment and I'm not, I'm talking long-term, I mean, that, that you could have uh, progressive developments. And we saw the Trump administration, you know, acted, were, were very active in trying to uh, prevent progressive developments. I mean, telling California that they couldn't raise their uh, emission standards, uh, you know, uh, and I think in a second Trump administration, that effort probably would have been successful. And a bigger barrier is the Supreme Court, actually. Um, you know, so that, that's, that needs to be taken into account, too. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you. There's no perfect solution uh, from the, for, you know, to these difficult issues. So I just want to emphasize, I agree with Adam on the, the progressives need to go to the state level. And you're already seeing that with the Northeast Compact on the response to COVID. They're all moving in the same direction. They're all talking to each other daily and they're all basically on the same page. So I do think this is, could be an opportunity to reinvigorate our focus on states. All right, well, I'm, I'm the one that's the, the Prince of Darkness today. So I'm gonna push us even further into the dark. Uh, we had a, just had an election with this extremely high mobilization, the highest turnout since 1908. I mean, that is amazing. It was like 66% turnout, something like that. That's the early estimates. Um, so high mobilization, people are really, really uh, uh, engaged in what's going on in the country, yet so deeply divided. And at the same time, we have, and I'm going to bring back here, uh, I don't want to let go, uh, what's going on right now, Trump's attempt to delegitimize the election, uh, which you know isn't going to work for him. He's, Biden's going to be president on January 20th. On the other hand, if you think about the long-term impact of this, he's basically telling this deeply divided country, at least one half of it particularly, that it cannot trust normal electoral institutions. These are people who obviously are highly mobilized, so what do you get in a political regime when you have high levels of mobilization and a delegitimization of democratic institutions? Uh, I see an autocrat around the corner. Well, I'm not gonna necessarily say that you're crazy um, because I think there's a lot of support for what you're saying. I am very concerned, I do think that the delegitimization, further delegitimization of elections as a primary mechanism for driving government policy um, it, it is not a good trend. Uh, and so I, my, my best response, Bill, is that I see, I see, that, I see that pattern and I think we're at the brink, um, but I'm hoping we sort of take a step back 
Um, I'm not going to say I'm fully optimistic about that, but I, I often, I told my students, look, you know, all these people walking around with weapons, they're not going to use the weapons, they're play acting, and it's part of the identity politics. Uh, so I think sometimes we tend to overemphasize the threat to our system, even though the threat is real. Do you, Adam, do you want to jump in? Because uh, if not, I need to respond to what Joe said. Uh, you should respond. And <laughs> I, I, I think, I mean, I just, I hate to, again, be, you know, along, along the lines of the, the, the Prince of Darkness thing here, but I really am, I'm, I'm pessimistic about this. It doesn't, it doesn't require that many people turning to actual violence to destabilize a society and destabilize a political regime. We've seen that in other countries and at times in the past. And even if they're largely play acting, I think that it's, it's incredibly dangerous when normal de liberal democratic institutions be come into such disrepute with elections being kind of the most important one. And I, and I just don't see anything good on the horizon from this. And frankly, you know, I don't want to glorify the, the, the framers of the Constitution. Far, far be it for me to ever do that. Uh, I've never been known to do that. On the other hand, uh, the framers recognize very clearly the dangers of, of a demagogue and of demagoguery and of the ability to use uh, the quote-unquote popular arts to, you know, stir up tensions Right. Uh, and, and their response to that was right to create these institutions, right, that would kind of play factions off each other, but but contain that conflict in institutional bounds um, with sort of a sort of was sort of an elitist solution in some ways as well with the Senate. But so the danger was was recognized long ago. But I think we have outgrown, as Bill mentioned earlier, our 18th century institutions ability to contain it, given social, cultural uh, technological changes, and we're on a, a, a very dangerous brink with this. Yeah, and, and I just want to sort of supplement what you said. I don't disagree. I think the biggest mistake the framers made as it relates to the presidency, they thought they set something up so that a demagogue would never get there, and they have been proven wrong. Yeah, big time. I mean, but you know, going back to you know Trump's efforts to delegitimize the election, I mean, that's what spawned this whole discussion. The most troubling, troubling thing about all of this for me is not actually uh, what Trump is saying or doing, because this is, you know, what I think most of us would have expected from him. It's the way, you know, Republican leaders are responding. You know, it's the uh, it's the refusal to denounce him. It's in many cases uh, the explicit support of him. Right. This is this is how you know that the guardrails of our political system have really fallen off. Right. When you know, somebody, when a president can say these kinds of things um, and do these kinds of things and suffer no consequence for it from within his own political party. And, um, and so, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's in some ways a truism, but it never, it does bear mentioning that, or it does bear repeating that the real crisis here is, is a crisis not involving Trump the person. It's, it is a crisis involving the Republican Party at the elite level, right? Um, Republican political leaders and their acquiescence uh, to this style of governing. And I, I would include uh, their, the, the, the uh, other social elites, uh, particularly corporate elites, you know, donors to the Republican Party. I was heartened today to read an article that Sheldon Adelson came out saying that uh, Trump ought to concede. <laughs> so, so maybe there, 
Well, there are some donors, so some donors are maybe uh, being more responsible here, but you would think that those you know, donors would put pressure on the Republican politicians to act more responsibly, and that evidently is not happening. Uh, so, and there's a whole, and, and what you could talk about, you know, the CEOs of major corporations, the heads of big institutions. I mean, there ought to be a, they, there should be a whole panoply of people coming out and denouncing this and saying, you know, stop, we can't allow, we can't continue going down this road. And I don't see that happening. I think, I think we see a lot of elites just sitting back and saying, well, you know, I've got mine. If I can protect my, you know, if I can keep the, if the stock market keeps, keeps me okay, uh, what do I, what, 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 what I, what do I need to worry? Well, this is my current idea about why this is happening. And, you know, I do believe we've missed the extent to which Donald Trump is a masterful transactional person that, you know, I'm going to give you what you want if you support me. Um, and so I, I, you know, I think we need to examine the extent to which this is all of a, a transactional decision. And so all of these people are falling behind him because they're getting what they want, even though he's doing all the other stuff they don't want. So, I just, I, so real quickly on what Bill said with Sheldon Adelson, I, I agree. I'm, I'm somewhat heartened by that kind of thing because you need to be hardened by it at this point. But it does. It is quite a comment on the situation that we're in that that we're actually praising uh, that people, whether they're senators or, or former Republican officials or corporate CEOs or wealthy donors who actually will come out and call out Trump's behavior right now. I think it it's. I try to communicate to my students who are, you know, 18 to 21 years old or whatever, how strange the political time that we're in right now is uh, as a country. And I think that says something about it. Um, the other elite I would mention is media elites, which I have a complex relationship to and view of in my own work and, and scholarship and my own views. But the reality, again, is that 50 years ago, there were certain trusted voices in a kind of normal sort of liberal democratic kind of media institution environment who could stand up and, and who could carry credibility with large swaths of the American public and who could come out and call out this kind of behavior and would have, right? But we're in a different environment. And not only that, but we have media elites who are doing the opposite, enabling it. Although, you know, some of them on the, on the more conservative side have begun to turn against the most egregious statements and actions by Trump just in the, since the election. But we don't have those elites, those opinion leaders either, the way we used to. I, I think there, there's a simpler explanation than Joe's for why uh, Republican leaders are refusing to stand up to Trump right now. And that is essentially that uh, they need uh, Trump's base to turn out in these two runoffs that are going to be occurring in Georgia in January. That's a transaction. Oh, okay. So that's what you meant. All right, fine. Um, yeah. And so, but yeah. I guess, so, okay, Joe's theory was right after all, but the point. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. But Finally. I think that, you know, again, this goes to the point I was making earlier. I think Republican leaders um, are right now motivated more than anything else by this fear that Democrats are going to get absolute power, right? There, it doesn't appear to me that there's a real policy agenda that's undergirding um, the Republican Party right now. It's more stopping the Democrats from taking control. And obviously, if Democrats win these two Georgia runoffs, then they do take control. They take control of the Senate. They have unified control of the federal government. Now, it's going to be very narrow control. And even under those circumstances, I don't think Democrats will be able to get a lot done. Uh, but it 
would be control nonetheless. I think the Republicans' policy agenda, Frank, I mean, I agree that they don't have an affirmative policy agenda that has a broad appeal, but the Republicans' policy agenda has been clear for a long time, and it's tax cuts, especially tax cuts for the wealthy, and it's deregulation. And it, that continued under Trump, and that most of the Senate Republican <laughs> coterie is on board with that. And, you know, and so if they can do that, that's what they would like to do. And they certainly want to block, you know, uh, tax increases on the wealthy, and that's what they're trying to do here, and, uh, and, and additional regulations, including environmental regulations. So they're desperate to win these Georgia seats. Uh, I agree, but I also think that the motivation goes beyond the, special, the, the runoff elections in January. I don't, I don't think it's going to, I don't think the attitudes that lead to the enabling of Trump by the Senate Republicans and others are going to go away at the elite level in the Republican right. Party. That's true. I think they're longer term and they're way more problematic. And those ad, those those policy, I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a Republican Party that would come up with conservative solutions to the problems I was listing earlier? Uh, you could imagine such a party, and they, actually, they exist in some parts of the world. You know, uh, absolutely. So, uh, but but we don't have it here. Okay, gentlemen. Uh, I'm sorry that I took us in such a dark direction. Uh, well, maybe I'm going to have to come up with a, some podcast episodes that are more optimistic about America's future. Well, I'll, I'll work on that. But anyway, thank you for this. I think we covered a lot of territory, talked about some interesting issues, and I hope our listeners found them interesting as well. Uh, so thanks to Adam Myers, Matt Guardino, and our department chair, Joe Camerano of the Political Science Department of Providence College. And thanks also to Chris Judge of Marketing Communications for doing the production work on this podcast. And especially thank you to our listeners. Please tell others about this podcast and, and ask them to subscribe.